0: to the Dread Podcast Network.
1: Don't miss Michaela Miller, Ann Haish, and Dermot Mulroney in the pulse-pounding thriller You're Killing Me. When Eden attends a heaven-or-hell party, hoping to get a letter of recommendation to an elite university from the wealthy parents of her classmate, the party quickly turns into a fight for her life. You're Killing Me is available now to buy our rent. This episode is sponsored by the new demonic thriller film, Nefarious, starring Sean Patrick Flannery and Jordan Belfi. Set on the day of his scheduled execution, a convicted serial killer gets a last-minute court-ordered psychiatric evaluation. The killer surprises the psychiatrist with his claim that instead of trying to avoid his fate, he is a demon who wants the execution to go forward. And further claims that before their brief time together is over, the doctor will have committed three murders of his own. Nefarious is playing only in theaters nationwide starting April 14th. Get your tickets now at www.nefarioustickets.com. That's www.nefarioustickets.com. From Nice Sky Productions World Headquarters, overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garrison. This is the fun size version of Postmortem AMA, where you can ask, me anything and asking your questions on your behalf is producer pizza joe russo pizza joe (laughs) how are you today
2: (laughs) uh full-on pizza mick i had i had some last night
1: (laughs) well yeah well easter is tomorrow as we're recording this so uh right i know what you'll celebrate with
2: uh you know probably not i think we're gonna do a nice little easter brunch and uh you know maybe put on the two seminal easter movies ben-hur and critters 2 Uh,
1: (laughs) now there's a double bill that i've not been exposed to before (laughs) but couldn't be more appropriate
2: couldn't be more appropriate uh i'm really glad we got to celebrate critters 2's 35th anniversary on the pod last week
1: yeah it it made me feel great and elderly
2: Well, well i think i think the fans really enjoyed it too and uh it's 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 always fun to revisit the first feature film Mick Garris outing. Uh, <laughs> done it a couple times, and and it, and it never gets old. Uh, uh,
1: and such great people, I was so fortunate to work with on that, and it helped ease my way into my first feature.
2: Absolutely, and uh, when this episode drops, you will be heading to Detroit.
1: Yeah, where we will be screening Critters Two again. Perfect the anniversary celebration. So uh, I'm looking forward to that and visiting the Motor City for the first time.
2: And you're going to be doing a live post-mortem Ask Mick Anything without me.
1: Without producer Joe. Yeah, I don't know how we'll get through it, but Adam... De Filippi from the festival will be stepping into your very large shoes so we'll see how it goes
2: i i'm i'm sure he'll do a great job and and hopefully he doesn't replace me uh, <laughs> that's
1: right uh, <laughs> unless we start doing our show remotely from detroit on a regular basis that's probably not gonna happen
2: <laughs> all right well uh appropriately our first question uh is about critters too. oh so, gee woody wood pickle Writes.
1: Woody's back.
2: Woody's back. In the Critters 2 35th anniversary episode, you mentioned the explosion and the workaround when it didn't go quite as planned. Using three angles from one explosion was quite clever. What are some other solutions to problems you've had to employ? Also, Lin Shay, the world needs more Lin Shay.
1: Well... The last part first, absolutely. There's never enough Lin Shay, and she is a total delight and uh, wonderfully wacky and in the best possible way. But you know, filmmaking is problem solving more than anything uh, on on a show like this, <clears throat> where it's filled with physical effects, stunts, and animals, and kids, and night shoots, and everything complicated that we've talked about before. But uh, in this case, every day there was a challenge. Uh, The multiple cuts of the explosion because the two other explosions that were supposed to happen didn't happen because the wires that led to those explosive devices were burned up in the first explosion. So just using it in the editing room, cutting it from different angles to create the feeling that it's a multiple blow explosion. But some of them aren't necessarily problems, they're opportunities. Um, For example, when uh, the scene outside of Quigley's uh, shop, his antique junk shop, where Lynn Shea and Scott Grimes and Leanne Curtis all drive up to where Lynn is and she's screaming about the critters attacking and Quigley falls out of the door on top of Scott. And so we're all of the technicians are throwing critter balls at the truck and at the actors and the like. And one of them went into the window of the truck, which wasn't supposed to happen, but it gave us an opportunity where, okay, let's add another shot of the critter crime climbing up and going in and attacking them in the truck, which which was not scripted.
2: which, Which you brought that up on the podcast too. And I, I would never have guessed that that wasn't intentional. Yeah. Um, it, felt, it felt like it should have happened, which is, I mean, that's the beauty of some of those happy accidents.
1: And that's exactly the the thing that's exciting about making a film like this is happy accidents make it better. And this was an idea that somehow had passed us by in the writing and in the planning stage. And it happened and we could easily quickly adapt to it because the puppeteers were there, the puppets were there and we were able to shoot on the fly. So it's not so much fixing mistakes as just taking advantage of opportunities as they present themselves, because yeah. that was the only big mistake. Um, there are times where it just, there wasn't the time to, to devote to it. And fortunately we had a very talented second unit crew at work um, handling all of the, the puppet action that I wasn't able to on the set. So, um, as complicated as it was, it wasn't a troubled shoot. It was just a difficult shoot.
2: So, Stuart wants to know, Mick, when will you watch Batman Returns in full? And when will you guys do a watch-along of it on (laughs) post-mortem?
1: Okay, I know Joe chose the questions here. (laughs) And let's answer the second part first again, we're not going to do a watch-along on postmortem. <laughs> and secondly, I did my due diligence and watched the first reel of Batman Returns and can appreciate its many merits, but it exists far outside my area of interest. Um, I was not captivated by it, uh, but I could appreciate it. It's just not a kind of movie that really fulfills my watching needs. You don't like superhero movies. It's, it's I, the... I, I don't. There are some that I have enjoyed. You know, the first Iron Man I thought was great. I thought the yep. first Guardians of the Galaxy was great. Yeah, sure. But it's just not something that appeals to me. Still, I, I read I wish, comics as I a wish kid. You,
2: uh, I wish you'd hung in there for Michelle Pfeiffer's Catwoman, though. But that's, <laughs> that's all I got to say. That's my last, my last and final pitch for it. But, you know, people have been asking us to do watch alongs for a couple of years now. I, I, I do think at some point, maybe we should think about maybe finding a movie we both like and love. Yeah. And, and yeah. Think about it. You know, um, I think it could be a fun little way to shake up the AMA format. So long as uh, engineer Chris is willing to hang for a little. <laughs> longer. Uh, and maybe
1: something that we've made, you know?
2: Yeah. About that, that, you know, the uh, fourth anniversary of nightmare cinema is coming up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there we go. All right. Uh, (laughs) People
1: rarely celebrate fourth anniversaries, but what the That's
2: right. We can make, well, we can make a meal out of it. Uh, Mm -hmm.
1: And uh, Engineer Chris says he's ready for anything.
2: All right, there we go. So maybe we'll we'll, we'll look at that in June. All right. Spooky Bard, right? (laughs) I know your current thoughts on franchise horror, but I have to ask, if a major studio approached you to helm a requel of a popular slasher franchise, such as Friday the 13th or A Nightmare on Elm Street, would you do it?
1: We've answered this question before. Sort of, it's a little different. It's a little bit different. If it were just another requel, sequel, prequel, uh, I'm not interested in that. If it were an opportunity to do something completely new in a way that Like they tried to do something new with the final Halloween movie that disappointed a lot of fans and may have been misjudged a bit. But um, to really bring something new, I don't know that you can bring anything new to Friday the 13th. Tommy McLaughlin did an amazing job by doing Scream before there was Scream, by doing a self-reflexive satirical take on it that still delivered the goods. but it is basically a a slasher movie that's all about creative kills. I think that's been done enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nightmare on Elm Street has always had much more imagination living in the dream world that it does and doing really unique cinematic ideas. So if there were a way to go back to Springfield and do a Nightmare on Elm Street in a really fresh new way, whether I wrote it or uh, another writer who knows that world really well, uh, I certainly would consider doing it if we could do something really new and fresh and exciting with it. Friday the 13th, I don't know that that's possible, but I do think that it's possible to breathe new life into something that started out as such a unique and imaginative cinematic experience.
2: You're only limited by your dreams with the Nightmare on Elm Street.
1: Exactly.
2: Yep. Man of Horror writes, why do you think horror mixes so well with other genres or forms of entertainment like pro wrestling, rock and roll, etc.?
1: I'm not so sure it works so great with pro wrestling.
2: <laughs> Actually, you'd be surprised, Mick. I mean, The Undertaker had a really long run.
1: Uh, yeah, well, there's that. But uh, there have been disappointing uh, um Hybrids, as well, in that regard. But I I think because you're talking about mixing horror with other transgressive genres, you know, rock and roll, particularly metal, is a good mix with that because it's music you don't want your parents to listen to and it's movies you don't want your parents to enjoy with you. You know, it's something that separates us from the mainstream. You know, rock and roll is mainstream. Horror is mainstream these days, but they are the, the the bleeding edge of what's mainstream, and they have the opportunity to go beyond the beyond. But the element of transgressive that goes into music, into wrestling, movies, books, uh, television, I think they they mate well in that regard rock and roll and wrestling go well together rock and roll and horror movies go well together wrestling and horror movies go well. so i i think it's just that element of of embracing something that you don't want to share with your parents
2: i uh i think i think that put put the put that one to bed uh <laughs> michael asks The Amazing Story episode, the main attraction, is so nutty. I have to ask, who's goofier, Mick Garris or Brad Bird?
1: (laughs) Well, the story idea itself was from Steven Spielberg. He came up with the idea. And it was the first script that I was hired to write on Amazing Stories. In fact, the first script anyone was hired to write. Oh, wow. And then when Matthew Robbins, who had written Steven Spielberg's first movie, Uh, was hired to direct it, he also brought in Brad Bird to do the rewrite with him because they were writing partners on uh, other projects. So we both have credit for a reason. Um, We both share equally in the creation of that. And you know, I think Brad has proven himself to be an amazingly imaginative filmmaker, first doing animation, doing The Incredibles and things like that, but also doing live action films too. I still uh, think- Like The Mission the, Impossible.
2: Yeah, I was going to say, I still think his is, is probably the best after the first one.
1: Yeah, uh, that's number five or four?
2: Four. four. Yeah, I think four. it's four.
1: Yeah, yeah but after that, really after a that talented the, guy. guy. Yeah, yeah,
2: after that, it became the Chris McQuarrie right. Series. Right. Uh, which, which by the way, are still great. So,
1: yeah. And it's Brad good. Bird is an incredibly talented guy and, you know, he was Matthew's guy and Stephen was really great about giving Matthew the opportunity to do a rewrite in however way he, he uh, wanted to. So I am quite proud of the work that I did on it and sharing that uh that credit with brad we both contributed to something that was created by steven spielberg and uh it was the very first one written for the show
2: pretty freaking cool if you ask me and and i
1: will and i'm
2: (laughs) (laughs) uh well speaking of asking paul writes With COVID, it feels like everything was put on pause industry-wise for a few years, and during that time, I focused on writing new screenplays, some that have been finalists and have won awards at different film festivals. Would you suggest that I continue to write features and try to get one of them to a producer or make some shorts and go the festival route? It seems like managements and agencies are flooded with submissions, and it's difficult to cut through all the stacks, of screenplays that sits in their inbox. Any words of wisdom are appreciated.
1: Well, even despite the pandemic, it has always been thus. Uh, Mm -hmm. We've talked about this before, what's the better way in writing a screenplay or or directing shorts. Um, I always lean toward the screenplay because it's complete, it's a movie. It's not part of a movie or it's not a short film. And I think people are looking more for a movie and a script than they're looking for short films. There is no shortage of writers or directors eager to work with the studios or the independents in making those movies. If you can make a short that blows people's minds, then by all means do it if you can write a script that blows people's mind. We, when we talked about this before, it's always about whatever you feel is your best foot forward. Right. If you're a great writer, the script is the best way to do it. If you're a great filmmaker uh, and you really know and understand the tools of filmmaking and, and how a, a film is made and is propulsive and engaging, then that's really important. But For me, I can only speak from personal experience that writing was my way in. And I didn't plan on it leading into directing, but it did in a very organic sense. So, um, but I think agents would rather read a script that blows them away than to watch a short.
2: Yeah, from a practical way of thinking about it, uh, an agent or a manager, if they have a, a, a director who has created a short and nothing else as much as they like it, it's very hard to get that director hired for a job. Uh, yep. And they like to know that they are able to self-generate ideas.
1: Now, um, if you do a short and then you have a feature script version of that short.
2: Sure. That's is, a different thing. It's I'm another, saying you just did the short. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the it's you know it's it's very hard for them to turn around and then say, we're going to book you for a job. Also, just from a practical standpoint, if you get booked on a feature job, you're on that job for one to two years, maybe yep. more, depending on what the movie is. Uh, a writer can work on several different projects in that time, yep. so it's easier to monetize a writer. It's easier to sell a writer director. So I think mixed advice about scripts goes beyond just what is the best thing you can do on the flip side of it from the, the agent side of it. Uh, they're more interested in hiring you as a writer than they are as a director. So, you know, it's great to have the proof of concept short that proves you can do it. But I think it's even more valuable uh, to get an agents and managers attention with a great piece of writing.
1: Yeah, a, a, an agent or a manager can sell a great script or even the writer uh, if it's a great sample. You know, I've written lots of scripts that got me a career going that never got made. Yep. Um, there's a script that the, was the reason that Spielberg hired me for Amazing Stories has never been made in all these years and other scripts that got me other work. But so the value of a screenplay a complete feature length screenplay goes far beyond whether they can sell it or not. If it's a really great example of terrific writing, particularly if it's in a field that someone's looking for a writer for. They love new writers, they love new directors because they can be less expensive and easier to control. But the writing thing, you're, you're, you're submitting something complete, not something that shows promise.
2: Exactly, exactly. Well, kind of staying on the same lines, Earl writes, Hey, Master of Horror, Mick, and Pizza Joe. Uh, By the way, he agrees with me, Mick, that you should try Detroit pizza. Ahem, ahem, ahem. Uh, Well, I was
1: told that there's really good um, uh, vegan pizza at Grandma Bob's in Detroit. All right,
2: well, give it a shot. I have no idea how their vegan pizza is going to be, but they do have good pizza. Uh, Earl wants to know, what kind of pitch do you like most, whether it's delivering it or receiving it? The fastball, short, sweet to the point, or the curveball a tad bit longer, deeper, and maybe a twist at the end? Or maybe you have a changeup. Sorry for the baseball analogy. I just want to know the best way to pitch a story from a couple of pros.
1: Well, as far as I'm concerned, from both the pitching and receiving end because as a producer on masters of horror i got lots of pitches Mm. for me the longer the pitch the less excited i was about it and the more (laughs) performed it was where you know there was one writing team that came in and they acted it all out and it went Mm. on and 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 and, uh, that does not work for me um i i personally, would rather just write something on spec and submit it. Now, that's not a way that agents and managers like to do it. And the studios would rather be pitched a project, especially if, even if the script already exists. But I've just, I'm have just i just starting pitching a project with two of the actors committed to it and a producing partner. Uh, we've just had our first pitch um, to uh, one of the major Network streamers. And um, it was 25 minutes long, but it also had two actors. It had me and it had this other producer, and it was scripted. I would never do it that way on my own. And I don't think a writer or a director should do it that way on their own. I think short and sweet and concise and engaging and entertaining. Don't just sit there and read what it's about or read your, your, your your short version Um punchy and direct and entertaining and promising a really good time to me is always the best and as long as you can keep it if you can keep it entertaining for 25 minutes that's that's great but the likelihood of that is minimal unless you have a couple of tv stars movie stars attached who are helping you with that presentation
2: yeah i, I hate to to say it but that 25 minute presentation that you're talking about is has kind of become the norm for the studio level pitch meetings and streamer level pitch meetings that's that's kind of what they expect now yeah i i, I yearn for the days that you're talking about you know that i hear you and, and and some of the other masters talk about where you know you could go in for 10 to 12 minutes and and pitch something you know uh, or not
1: even i mean i I really preferred just writing on spec and if it sells great and if it doesn't that's okay having the script to present to them as you leave the meeting
2: oh yeah yeah no that's that's i mean i think the, the the real answer uh earl is it depends on the scenario and it depends who you're talking to
1: yeah
2: i've found that you know when i'm talking to Fellow creatives like Mick, they can be shorter conversations. They don't have to be the full rehearsed 20 to 30 minute spiel uh, because Mick and, and other creatives can fill in the holes that a more business savvy studio exec or producer maybe can't wrap their brains around. Um, so I think it depends on the scenario. You know, if I was pitching Mick, an idea for masters of horror 3.0 i would probably just give him you know here's what i'm thinking you know yeah <laughs> uh, whereas yeah. whereas you know if i went in to pitch you know netflix or amazon or something like that they're going to want to know how does it play out who are the characters what are the you know the traps that they're going to face how does it resolve how does the character arc resolve Uh, they want to know all of that stuff they basically want to know the whole movie before they they say yes or no
1: Uh, and you need to be a capable storyteller verbally as well yes they are going to have questions you're going to want to be able to lay the basis the groundwork for what your your world you're creating is all about and do it in an engaging and entertaining way and not the best way is sitting there reading from a couple of pieces of paper but you also want it to feel spontaneous and not rehearsed like it it just doesn't feel fresh when it's obviously rehearsed and studied
2: yeah yeah it is it is like one of the the drawbacks uh to these longer pitches is it it loses that spontaneity uh and you know but but i i don't know it's 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 a weird it's a weird situation i would much prefer doing it the way you're you're describing it and, you know one of one of the um horror masters that i'm i'm currently developing with uh you know when we first met with him and we first talked to him about the idea he was like oh great you know put together a 10 minute pitch and and that'll be great and i was like oh my god 10 minute pitch like that's that's unheard of these days <laughs> And then, he, and then his development quickly exactly said that, that that's, that's going to be too short for, for what we need. It's going to need to be more like 20 to 25 minutes. And I was like, that's the yeah,
1: when so there's I, a specific number like that, it drives me crazy. It's like, tell the story as it yeah. needs to be told, yeah. but be prepared, you know, study it. Yeah. It, just don't go in there. Like you're reciting a, a, a school assignment that you had to learn. You yeah, know, not like yeah. reciting the Gettysburg Address. You're going in and telling them a story about fascinating characters and the situations yeah. they find themselves in.
2: Unfortunately, this is where we get into the, the rubber meets the road of writing, where it's not just about being good at writing on the paper. It's about uh, you have to be performative. I, don't, I think acting classes, improv classes can actually really help
1: a lot yeah, maybe. With,
2: with this. You know, I. Luckily I did a little bit of theater when I was younger. So when it comes to having to perform these things for 20 to 25 minutes, I can put on a little bit of a show, even if the document is in front of me on my screen, you know? Right. Um, so there, there's, you have to be able to mix, right. You can't just be like, and then this happens. That mm. would, that would put everyone to sleep. But, but if you can bring some energy to it, uh, you know, I I'll, I'll tell you, Mick, one time I was in a pitch meeting and, and I, uh, the show off he creative uh, he wanted to, <laughs> he wanted to uh, to have it memorized and, and uh, you know, he wanted to go off book and, and, you know, he clearly had a whole spiel planned out and he lost his train of thought.
1: That can happen.
2: And he just stopped talking huh. and it was the longest. It felt <laughs> like an hour. It was probably 30 seconds. Yeah. But he was trying desperately to figure out how to get back on track. And I think that's always like stuck in my head. Is like, Oh my God, what if that happens to me? So I want my, my, my paper nearby. Yeah. Um, you should
1: have your notes there, Yeah, uh, but you should not be restricted to them and yeah. just a sense of spontaneity and storytelling. Can yeah. I mean, do
2: yeah, I agree, but do, it feels comfortable for you because you don't want to be in that position where you become that person who's, Thinks they're so off book and then it just it just uh, doesn't work out for you. You know, (laughs) Uh, I'd rather I'd rather uh, have the pages in front of me and not forget uh, than, than, you know, have that scenario happen, because big surprise, that person did not get that job. Uh, But there, so,
1: yeah, it, it, it's true, Joe. What you say that they've gotten more and more conforming to a kind of delivery that they want, and that's really yeah. sad because it just is again the the uh, enemy of creativity. Uh, but, yeah, uh, yeah. You have to you have to work within the the boundaries of of what is laid out for you, and uh, just be really entertaining be fun to be listened to you know tell a story and i don't mean funny but be funny as well just engage them
2: well mick in a couple weeks we might not be pitching anybody (laughs) (laughs) true enough yeah and uh that brings me to our our final two questions which i've have merged into one uh rick asks With much of the landscape of filmmaking having changed and continuing to change since the 2007 Writers Guild strike, how seismic do you think the results of these current NBA negotiations could be? And Marco wants to know, what can we expect if a writer's strike does happen in the next few weeks?
1: Well, we've had some serious ones. When I first joined back in the late 80s, uh, there was a strike immediately after I joined and uh, and it was (laughs) pretty devastating for a while. But there have been a couple of them that are very long term because the Writers Guild are more willing to go out than any of the other guilds are. And one of the reasons we've talked about before is that I think something like 95% of all the members of the Writers Guild do not make their living as screenwriters. So they don't have anything to lose depending on their vote. But this is really serious stuff we're facing is you don't get much residuals much in the way of residuals from the streamers and the streamers have become the primary source for new movies and and television series so in historic days with the networks and broadcast all of that and cable they were trackable and you were able to receive residuals on a regular basis and a lot of screenwriters make their living on the residuals from what they've made in the past and they can make a comfortable living that way well that's not the way it is in the world of streaming it's a far more limited income that, uh, that writers get from that but aside from that if the writers go out It could be seismic in that the directors might join next because they come up next, the Screen Actors Guild. But it's all about making the creators benefit in ways that they have not. I've had experiences with merchandising deals on very, very popular things that I've done in the past that I've not shared in in any way. Uh, And the studio has made Probably close to a billion dollars off of, yeah, um, and so it's it's just that all of the income goes to the studios. And although there are plenty of very wealthy creators, the vast majority of those people who are just working in the industry don't see any of that. Um, and it it could last a while. And even if there is no strike, Right now, nobody's buying, nobody's taking pitches, nobody's in production, because the potential threat of that. But all of that said, I mean, the guilds exist for a reason. We wouldn't have residuals if it hadn't been for the early Screenwriters Guild, um, the Directors Guild, uh, Screen Actors Guild. You know, when you see the movies play over and over and over again, uh, they get... A, a decreasingly small slice of that pie <laughs> uh, to where I still get checks for like 13 cents occasionally. Right. Which cost a lot more to cut than to cash. <laughs> but um, yeah, it it could have a seismic effect or it could be that it doesn't take a long time. And if there is indeed a strike, there may be a willingness to sit down at the table and work it out together in a fair way for both sides
2: yeah I do think the directors banging the drum behind the the writers Guild this time is creating I think probably more of a sense of of willingness to to maybe work with the writers uh than maybe otherwise because if the directors strike two it's game over they did everything get shut down you know there's there's still a period of time where they'll have some scripts banked uh and they'll have some content banked that, that the studios can weather the storm um but if the direct, if the directors can't direct then uh there's there's nothing getting made um so you know that could be a really interesting thing that happens uh it's not fun living through this stuff um Mick's not wrong like the development market is is ice cold um yeah maybe the cool i
1: I also went through this before on on fear itself
2: well let's talk about that because because i know we've kind of brushed on it in the past but now that we're you know potentially about to go through maybe another strike this summer what what exactly happened what um, happened was
1: uh showtime decided they didn't want to pay what um Lionsgate was asking for a third season of show of Masters of Horror. Right. And uh Anchor Bay sold Masters of Horror to Lionsgate. And Lionsgate asked for double what they had been paying before. And Showtime said, Never mind. So Lionsgate sold it to NBC. And we have talked about this before. I'll try and keep it short. Right. But you know, with NBC, you've got commercials, you've got um broadcast standards, censorship, issues that we did not have when we were on Showtime. And I didn't want to do the show. And I was convinced to stay on by some of the filmmakers who said, look, there have been other shows that have done it without, you know, but the philosophy of Masters of Horror was give the greatest filmmakers in the genre free reign to do whatever they want. We couldn't do that. But we could still maybe make a good show. We had 13 episodes committed. So we had 13, at least the first draft of 13 scripts before the date of the strike, which took place on Halloween that year. But there would need to be rewrites and changes and all that stuff. So what happened was I went out on strike uh, and I was really the only staff writer on the show. And they brought in non-union staff writers to do all of the rewriting. And it was in a way that there's, I could not in good conscience stay on board. I couldn't be a producer saying here, you guys do these changes that I think should be made. No, that's, that's just antithetical to the way the Guild works and right. the way I, my set of morality standards work. And so they brought these people in, and I think the work that was done was subpar. I was very disappointed in the show, and I I quit the show because of that very thing. And it was my baby, but I, it broke my heart to have to do it. But I couldn't stand to see my baby brought up um, in that way, to be kidnapped and, and raped.
2: I still don't understand I guess how that happened because like obviously all of the the development work that was done would have had to be done through some sort of a signatory entity
1: well it was it was for Lionsgate and right
2: so how did how were they able to hire essentially non-union scabs like i just don't because
1: they did it independently and they were they're able to hire non-union people during a strike because that's not illegal it's just that good luck for if you do that getting into the guild in the future later
2: yeah and
1: they also hired writers from another country from canada Uh uh-huh so they were able to avoid that whole union thing because the writers guild of america was not involved and so that's where they went for these writers and again the in my opinion it was quite subpar to what we'd able we'd been able to do on masters of horror so
2: oh and and what we did again on nightmare cinema you and know nightmare
1: cinema with uh, the same philosophy yeah yep,
2: yep. uh no that's interesting I've, I've always kind of i i've never been able to write ra- you know it's the the guild will be putting out uh should should we get to the point where there a strike is necessary um which it feels like we're we're rapidly approaching as of this recording uh you know should we get there the guild will put out a list of what writers can and and can't do and we would urge anyone whether union or non-union to to probably give those a look through and uh make sure you're not crossing any bridges like what happened on fear itself
1: yeah Uh, yeah so um well we're not so fun sized today but what the hell
2: (laughs) there was a lot to talk about and uh you know I'm not going to be here on the next AMA. So, uh, no,
1: we're making the no, most no. of Pizza so, Joe today. Yes. <laughs> I
2: really hope that nickname doesn't stick. All right. Too late. Mick, <laughs> <laughs> Joe. Uh, shall we tell them where they can send their questions?
1: Please do, Producer Joe.
2: You can send your questions to askmickanything at gmail.com or you can find us on the social medias. Mick is at Mick Garris PM on Twitter and Instagram, respectively. And I am at Joe Russo tweets and at Joe Russo Graham on Twitter and Instagram, respectively. Send okay. us what you got, and we'll we'll ask Mick anything on a future episode of Postmortem.
1: All right. Thanks a lot, Joe. Thanks everybody for your questions and for hanging in with us. And if you are so moved, we would love it if you would rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Thank you, Mick. Thanks, Joe. Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every Wednesday or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Post-Mortem with Mick Garris is produced by Mick Garris and Joe Russo. Our sound engineer is Christopher Leon Price. Our announcer is Jeff Gelb. Our graphic designer is John Holland. And our theme was composed and performed by Bill Burney with additional music by John Jasensky. If you're enjoying our show, please take a moment to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast Network.